0: Well, thank you very much for leading us in that time of worship. Well, good morning, Faith Church. My name's uh, Sam Huggard. I'm the uh, district superintendent for the New England district of uh, the Evangelical Free Church of America, of which this church is a part. And I was uh, here this past May for three Sundays, uh, right after Pastor Bill uh, retired. And uh, it was good to be with you back then, and I'm glad to be here again today. Um, I was called a couple of weeks ago by Pastor Brent asking me to come up uh, because there was a men's retreat happening, and I got very excited because I thought I was getting invited to the men's retreat, and he said, no, no, we need you to fill in, and I said, well, I'm, I'm glad to do that too. Um, actually, the older I get, I love men's retreats, but the downsides of men's retreats is all the snoring. I don't sleep very well on men's retreats. Um, so I slept well last night and I'm well rested and glad to be here with you. I'm sure uh, the guys may come home spiritually energized and maybe physically drained. So uh, welcome them back. Well, um, I want to take a moment before I jump into the message today, uh, just to encourage you. Uh, I've been in a lot of contact with elders and staff, uh, and the discernment team, uh, since, uh, May. And I am really encouraged, uh, by how serious and thorough, uh, this church is taking uh, the process of discerning from the Lord how he's leading this church. Um, you really are being led well, and I am grateful for that. I'm grateful for the staff and their humility and their leadership and how they're serving Christ here. And for the elders, the shepherding team, how seriously they're taking this task. And the discernment team, their wisdom. Um, I'm just grateful uh, that this church really is engaged well in this process. And I know it's a hard process. Um, every church that goes through a pastoral transition, um, it always involves an uncomfortable process. But I'm grateful for how God is already walking you through it. And I know you are as eager, more eager than I am, for the process to be over. And uh, I'm praying for that as well. Uh, today, I'm not going to speak about pastoral transition. Uh, we're going to look at uh, Psalm chapter 3. And we're doing this for a few reasons. One is very personal. Uh, I've kind of been living in the Psalms over the past three years. Um, They've really been teaching and enhancing um, my prayer life. Um, As many of you probably know, uh, the Psalms are the prayer book of the Bible. And for centuries, they've been the prayer book of the church. Um, This is what countless Christians throughout the ages have used for prayer. Um, I think what's really cool are these are the prayers that Jesus prayed. Uh, he prayed them when he walked the earth. And so if we want to learn how to pray in all circumstances, the Psalms is a great tutor. Now today we're looking at Psalm 3, which David wrote, and it's a Psalm of lament, which means he wrote it in distress, uh, in, in suffering, and he's crying out to God, lamenting to him uh, about his situation. Um, I hope that this psalm is instructive for us about how we can pray during distress. And so maybe some of you here today say, that's me, (laughs) I want help today, I'm facing some stuff and I really want to be able to pray well and experience God's deliverance as I pray. Others of you say, well, that's not me today, but I remember quite recently having gone through that, or you may think that's probably going to be me soon. See, none of us get through life without distress. So learning how to pray in the midst of our distress enables us um, both uh, to honor God, but also to receive from him the deliverance he offers. So I pray this really is a beneficial prayer for us to consider today. Uh, so if you have a Bible, uh, Psalm chapter 3, I'm going to read from the New International Version. We'll read, pray, and dive in. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Selah. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. Selah. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord. Deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Selah. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, how grateful we are. Uh, that you are the God that we can cry out to in any and all circumstances. Uh, Lord, we we cry out to you in thanksgiving. Uh, There are so many good things that you shower upon us, family and friends, uh, food, uh, the very breath we take in, uh, grace upon grace from you. And we cry out our thanks and our praise. Lord, we also cry out to you in our distress. We recognize that we live in a world uh, that is broken and when life is full of difficulty And we wish it were not so. And so, Lord, we cry out to you and we say, help, deliver us. So, Lord, I pray today uh, that you would hear our prayer. And, Lord, you would also teach us how to pray better in the midst of our distress, to pray biblically, to honor you. But, Lord, we also pray that we would receive from you the deliverance that you promise. So, God, I pray today um, that you would instruct us by your word and by your spirit. And I also pray that you would conform us to the image of Christ, so that we would not only pray the same words he pray, but Lord, that our hearts would be like his as we pray. So Lord, please use this time today for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned, this is a psalm of David. Uh, He wrote it in his distress. And as I read it, you probably noticed that there's uh, three groupings in this prayer, each separated with a selah. Selah being a Hebrew word for Breath or rest? It's like David prays a section and then takes a minute. On to the next one. There's three distinct thoughts in this psalm. And I kind of named each one to guide our time today as we work through them. The first one, David simply recognizes, I got trouble. I got trouble, God. And he takes a breath. Then he recognizes, but I got you, God. I got God. Then thirdly, I got deliverance. I got trouble. I got God. I got deliverance. And we're going to work through this psalm today. And I pray that that pattern kind of seeps into our souls and guides our prayers as we are in distress. So first section, verses one through two, I got trouble. David begins it with a sigh. You can almost hear his weariness. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me, many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Three things here that David recognizes about his troubles. Uh, first, he recognizes that his troubles are numerous. He says how many are my foes i 'm not just facing a foe, a problem, I have many foes, many problems. <laughs> That word foe there is the word for oppressor. The picture is someone who's in battle. And they are being pressed in upon, not just by one side, one enemy, but on every side. Multitude of enemies pressing in, um, constricting. Almost think of a boa constrictor, compressing a person, being pressed in on every side. Now, the the heading for this psalm uh, gives us some instruction About the enemies that David is dealing with, the situation he finds himself in. You know, the heading says this was written during the time when his son Absalom came against him. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 15 and 16, you can read this account. Toward the end of David's life, uh, his son Absalom betrayed him, uh, gathered a group uh, opposed to David, Uh, Over a period of time, in a large group, then marched on Jerusalem to take the throne from David. And as Absalom and his crew came to Jerusalem, David realized he was outnumbered, and he had to flee Jerusalem. So David sees a great number coming against him. How many are my foes? He sees a great trouble coming his way. Now, I'm guessing uh, not many of you have faced this scenario of your child betraying you and leading an army against you. It may have felt that way, but I'm sure it wasn't exactly that way. Um, But I do think probably most of us can resonate with the idea of having numerous troubles coming at us at once. You know, it's one thing to take a problem head on. It's another thing to feel like you have problems coming at you from every side. You know, financial, health, relational, all at once. It just seems overwhelming when troubles press in upon you. Uh, If you've felt that happen to you before, guess what? You're normal. That's life in a broken world. This psalm recognizes reality. That God does not keep us from trouble, though we wish he would. But trouble, distress, opposition... Those are normal parts of living in a broken world, even for those who love God and who seek to follow his commands. And I need to recognize that because in the back of my mind, I have this thought that somehow life shouldn't be that way. That if you love God, life should go well for you. That We shouldn't have to face those kind of problems, but that is not the case. The rain comes upon the just and the unjust alike. In this world, we will have trouble, but we can't take heart because Christ has overcome. But we will have trouble. So this psalm recognizes reality that we have troubles in this world, and they're numerous. But I love what David does. He simply begins by pouring out those troubles to God. And we should do this too. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? God wants us to cry out to him in our troubles. He wants us to express exactly what we're thinking, what we're feeling. He can handle that. So David simply cries out to God about his troubles. How many are my foes? He then secondly recognizes about his troubles that not only are they many, but they are multiplying how many rise up against me. That his, his enemies are growing in number. And you'll see this, you'll see this if you read 2 Samuel 15-16. through 16. As Absalom got closer to Jerusalem, some of David's friends and advisors defected. They left David and joined Absalom. His enemies grow in number. Now, it's bad enough that his son conspired against him. But then to see more of his friends... Uh, defecting to see his enemies growing in number it was so troubling. Uh, I'm not sure if you've had this circumstance of feeling like you're already feeling overwhelmed and then one more thing goes wrong and it feels like it's piling on and if you're like me my instinct in those moments is to say really God really you think I'm already dealing with this but you know what I'm not so sure that's a bad prayer. I think it is right to go to God when our troubles seem to multiply, even when we're frustrated. When you read through the Psalms, they are quite honest about all the emotions in life. The psalmists complain to God, get angry at God. God wants to hear our prayer, even when it doesn't seem very filtered or prim or proper. Troubles are multiplying, and David expresses to God, man, I got a lot of troubles, and they're growing. Oh, God. Lastly, what David recognizes about his troubles, and I think this is the most important thing that we need to see about David's troubles. This forms the crux of the psalm is that his enemies are speaking. It's not just that he has troubles. It's not just that he has enemies. There's a particular message that is coming his way as these enemies come to him. And here's the message. God will not deliver him. God will not deliver you, David. This message from his enemies is accusing and terrifying. You know, as uh, David fled his throne and his home in Jerusalem, we read in Second Samuel 16 that one of King Saul's family members uh, named uh, Shimei. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Shimei, Shimei, um, Shimei anyway. Uh, he began throwing stones at David and cursed him as David was leaving Jerusalem. And listen to what he said to David. He said, get out, get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has handed over the kingdom to Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a man of blood. Shimei was an accuser. He he was saying to David, God's with Absalom. He's not with you. Don't trust in God. He's not going to deliver you. And here's why. You're a man of blood. You're a violent man. You've caused the deaths of many people. Now, what's interesting is about that, he was correct. You may remember that uh, David wanted to build a temple for God. And God said, you're not to build the temple because you're a man of blood. That's for your son Solomon to build. Now, David was in his warfare actually doing God's will. So it wasn't that this was unjust violence, but nevertheless, that was true. So this accuser was taking something that was true about David, but then twisting it and saying, because you're a man of blood, God will not deliver you. And that part was not true. Now, every single one of us also has an accuser, and especially during times of distress, this accuser loves to bring this message. God will not deliver you. God will not deliver you. The scriptures tell us that this accuser, this enemy that we all have, uh, is named the devil, that our struggle is not just against flesh and blood, against people that we can see. But against an enemy that we cannot see. Now at this point, I may be losing some of you. Some of you may be saying, "Oh come on, Sam, Um, let's let's just talk about God and how to how to live well. Um, We don't need to talk about the devil. Um, Maybe you don't believe in the devil, or maybe you just don't want to talk about it. It's too uncomfortable. Uh, A lot of people feel that way. There was a Gallup poll done in 2011 that uh, revealed that nine out of ten. Americans still believed in a divine being of some sort. So nine out of 10 Americans back in 2011, I'm sure it's different now, uh, believed in a God of some sort. But in that same year, only 43% of Americans believed that the devil was a living entity. I think that's part of the evil one's strategy. He does not want us to know he exists and is actively at work. Yet the scriptures warn us again and again about this reality. We're told your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour. We're told to resist him. Now, the devil in the scripture is called Satan. And that name actually helps us to know how he works. Satan means accuser, one who accuses, one who brings a charge. And what Satan does is he simply takes things that are true about us, Things that we have done, feelings that we've had, and there's an accusation. You're in the wrong. But then there's a twist. Therefore, God doesn't love you. Therefore, God won't deliver you. Therefore, you can't trust him. Just like Shimei was doing with David. You're a man of blood. God won't deliver you. Now, on the surface, that seems to be true. I mean, David's leaving Jerusalem Absalom seems stronger. That seems to be the case. But as we see in David's prayer, it wasn't the case. And we, like David, need to learn how to pray during these times of distress when we are facing accusation. Because here's what Satan's goal is. Satan's goal is not to make us have a bad day. Um, to make us have less money in our bank account or ruin our health. His goal is that we would not trust in God. That's his end game, that we would not trust in God. That instead of trusting in God for our deliverance, we would trust in ourselves or some other means. We would look to our finances to deliver us from distress. We would look to substances to deliver us from distress. We would look to pride in our accomplishments to deliver us from distress. And none of those things ultimately can. Only God can deliver. And Satan does not want us to trust that. And see, when we buy into that lie, he's devoured us. He's devoured us, our faith. So David simply begins this prayer by praying to God, I got troubles, I got a lot of them, they're growing, and here's the message coming at me during the troubles. And then he takes a breath. (sighs) Now thankfully, the psalm doesn't end here. And I fear all too often, some of our prayers do. And if the psalm ended here, what we would call that is spiritual worrying. That we just take our concerns and worry them to God, but don't really go any further. I think that actually enhances our problems. It doesn't help. No, we should bring all those cares to God as our starting place in prayer. Here's my heart, God. Here are the problems I'm facing. Take a breath. And let's move on. Next section. David starts with, I got problems. And then, and a very, very important word. But, you, Lord... Are a shield around me. My glory. The one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. I got problems, but I got God. And we see a shift in David's focus from his troubles to his God. And this is the shift that we need to make in prayer as well. Not only bringing our problems to God, but then focusing our mind upon God. And David does this in four ways in this section. Four things about God that David recognizes in prayer. First, he says, you are a shield around me. You are a shield around me. A shield is used for protection. So David is saying, God, you protect me. I have enemies coming at me, all around me, but you protect me. And as he looks at God in prayer as his shield, he begins to realize how safe he is. Even as he flees Jerusalem, he's realizing how safe he is. Now this is interesting because usually a shield only protects a portion of a soldier. Uh, the front part, if he's holding it here. But David says, you are a shield around me. You're better than any human shield, God. I am totally protected by you. Above, below, beside, in front, behind. You are all around me, I am totally safe in you. You know, the Psalms are filled with these kind of, I would say, extreme statements about God's protection. Statements that almost make us scratch our heads. Saying, how could David be saying he's that safe? Uh, We see some of the danger around him. Psalm 23, "Even, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Psalm 121, the Lord will keep me from all harm. The Lord will keep me from all harm? How can David believe this? He has seen godly people suffer harm, even die. His good friend Jonathan suffered and died unjustly. How can David say, you are a shield around me, I am totally safe in you? Well, I think the answer is found in understanding how a shield protects. A shield protects the one who's holding it not by removing the person from the battle, but by absorbing the blows of the enemy in the battle. A shield doesn't remove the soldier from battle any more than we're removed from the troubles of this life. But a shield protects by absorbing the blows in the midst of the battle. And I think that David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recognized that our ultimate protection can only come when we are fully shielded by God. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us. That Jesus Christ on the cross was our ultimate shield. Our our sin, He absorbed. The consequence of our sin, He absorbed. All of those blows that would destroy us eternally, he absorbed. We're told there was a great exchange taking place upon the cross. Our sin placed upon him, his righteousness given to us. He was shielding us from the consequences of our own sin. The eternal destruction that would result if he had not stepped in as our shield. Now, because he absorbed our sin and its consequences, no ultimate evil can befall someone whose shield is Christ. No downturn in the economy can cause eternal bankruptcy. No sickness can cause eternal death. No attack can cause eternal dishonor. Nothing can cause ultimate harm to a person whose shield is Jesus. That's why Paul wrote nothing can separate us from the love of God, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. David, in prayer, first recognizes his troubles, gives them to God. Then he turns and begins to recognize who God is and what he's doing for him, that God is my shield, therefore I am safe, even in the midst of these troubles. He then recognizes a second thing about God. He says, you bestow glory on me. You're a shield, and now you bestow glory on me. Now, David had experienced a lot of glory in his time, probably more than most people. Um, People sang songs over his military conquests. People cheered for him. Jerusalem had been built up under his rule. He was honored and respected far and wide. David had what we call dignity. But when Absalom attacked, not only was David's safety threatened, but even more so, his dignity. Uh, I mean, he had his son betray him. It was considered a great indignity. Uh, He had to flee Jerusalem, fleeing from his son while listening to people like Shimei taunting him as he fled. And even worse, after he left the city, if you read the account in 2 Samuel 16, you'll see that Absalom disgraced his father even further by setting up a tent on the roof of the palace, and in the sight of all the people, slept with the women who were left behind in the palace. Absalom didn't just want the throne, he wanted to dishonor his father. Now, dignity is a big deal. It really is. Um, when we feel shame, when uh, we feel like we're made fun of or looked down upon, uh, we hate it. We, we tend to lash out against it. Um, I think we feel that today often as Christians. And we live in a culture where it's not considered a, a really cool or upstanding thing to be a devoted follower of Jesus. People say, why are you putting your trust in this antiquated book? I mean, it's just a book of myths. Really, you believe it? Why are you following, you know, those virtues? That's kind of an old way to live. You know, why, why, why don't you enjoy life a little bit more? And there's a, there's a sense of scorn, of contempt, of disdain that quite often comes to Christians' way uh, in the world today. Now, it's tempting to lash out in anger, simply wanting to be respected like anybody else. But that's not how David responded. He didn't lash out. He turned to God. And he recognized this, that his dignity didn't come from getting other people's respect, but from God alone who bestows glory on him. That God bestowed glory upon David. David didn't earn it. God gave it. So David did not need the respect of others. He only needed the glory that comes from God. Now, in a very similar way, if, we're a, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been given glory that is far greater than any glory that could come from a human being. That when Jesus took our sin on the cross, he not only removed the consequence for our sin, but then he replaced our sin, the record of our sin, with a record of his righteousness. That he has shared what is rightfully his with us. So that in God's eyes, we are considered holy, blameless, and without fault. That staggers me. I know myself. I know my deeds. I know my thoughts. I am not holy, blameless, and without fault. Yet because of Jesus, God says I am. That God has shared the glory of Jesus with us. And when we realize how glorious this is, we'll be willing to let other slights go. Okay. So you want to disdain me for being a Christian, so be it. You think I'm foolish for living this way? That's all right. I have a glory that's far greater, and you can't touch it. David recognizes that God alone can bestow glory upon us. And in prayer, we can turn our focus to that too. David says, you are my shield. You bestow glory upon me. And then thirdly, you lift up my head. You lift up my head. And This has the idea also of glory or dignity, but it's a little bit different. Um, you know, when we hang our heads, uh, we're talking about sadness or shame. If any of you are sports fans, uh, maybe you'll watch uh, at the end of a game, and they'll pan the winning bench and the losing bench. And quite often, the losing bench has the guy sitting there with a towel over his head, just looking down. It happens all the time. We just naturally hang our heads in sadness and in shame. And David said, you lift my head. Now, notice he said, you lift my head. If we are the lifters of our own head, that's called pride. And the Bible condemns it. People that lift their own head have their nose stuck in the air. But when God lifts your head, there's a rightness. There's an exalting that takes place. God exalts the humble, but casts down the proud. Now, what David is talking about here, I think, is largely a future reality. Right now, David's head is not lifted up as he's leaving Jerusalem and being taunted. I mean, he looks like he is disdained as he is leaving. But what David is talking about is that at some point in the future, he trusts that God is going to publicly vindicate him. David doesn't have to do that himself. God will do it. God will lift his head so all will see that he is right. And actually, that is what happened. Absalom eventually was exposed and defeated. David's throne was reclaimed. David's head was lifted. He was again honored before all. And if Jesus is your shield and your glory, then you have this hope too, that there is a coming day when the glory of Christ is going to be revealed to the whole world. The scriptures tell us that one day, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Everyone, everywhere, will recognize what is true about Jesus, who he is, how great he is, how good he is, what he has done. And on that day, there's going to be no more disdain for those who have chosen to follow him. On that day, those who have given their lives to Christ and have walked with him in this life are going to be seen as the wise men And wise women who have built their lives upon the rock of Christ. Our head will be lifted. Everyone will see that this is not a foolish way to live. This is the best way, the wisest way, the eternal way. And our head will be lifted on that day. So in prayer, David recognizes uh, that God alone is the one who can publicly vindicate him before others. And he will. And he will. And then he recognizes one last thing as he looks upon God. He says, to the Lord, I cry aloud, and he answers me from his holy hill. To the Lord, I cry aloud, and he answers me. Do you hear the boldness there? This is no, uh, boy, I hope God's listening. I hope he answers. He's saying, I know God, and he answers my prayers. There's a confidence there about how God will answer his prayers. He cries out boldly, confident that God will answer. And you know why? Uh, David has a history Of walking with God. He's prayed to him all throughout his life. He's experienced God's deliverance throughout his life. God delivered him from the lion, from Goliath, from military enemy after military enemy. David has built his life upon this pattern of crying out to God and God answering him. David is very confident that God hears and God answers his prayer. And at this point, you might think, I wish I was that confident, but I'm no David. Uh, David was called a man after God's own heart. You know, David wrote all these psalms. Uh, David was king. I'm no David. I can't be that confident that God hears and answers my prayer. And I want to say to you, oh, you can be more confident. You can be more confident than David that God hears and will answer your prayer. Hebrews 4, 14-17 tells us why we can be this confident. The author says, So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. Listen here. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. I love that. Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. I get the image here when I read this of my kids when they were little, bursting into my bedroom in the morning and jumping on the bed and waking me up. And there's no sense of hesitation. My my kids never thought, boy, I I don't belong in there. You know, I'm an outsider. No, they they, they want to jump in with their parents. They know that that door has open entry to them. Because they're my kids. And they want to be with me. Sometimes it was because they were scared. Sometimes because they were excited. But they wanted to come in. And they felt total freedom to rush into the arms of their parents. That's exactly the picture here. That we had this confidence because Jesus gave His life for us. He was the sacrifice that gives us open access into God's family that we're now called brothers and sisters of Jesus, sons and daughters of God the Father. And so we're not coming to God as employees, as servants. We're coming to him as his children. And we're guaranteed that he will welcome us because Jesus already gave his life for that purpose. And if he gave his life, why would God deny us now? That was the very reason Jesus died, so we could have open access to God. And so when we come boldly to God, we honor him and honor the sacrifice of Jesus, not coming on our own merit, on our goodness, but on Jesus and what he has done. We can come to God even more boldly than David came, knowing God hears and knowing he will answer. We see David first in the psalm brings his troubles to God, then he turns his focus And says, I got troubles, but I got God. He's my shield. He's my glory. He's the lifter of my head. And he hears and answers my prayers. And that brings us to the last section of this psalm. And you can see there's a change that's happened in David as he's gone through this prayer. After bringing his troubles to God and then turning his focus to God, he now receives deliverance from God. Last section, I got deliverance. Verse 5 through 8. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord. Deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. He begins by saying, I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. Uh, Anyone here ever had difficulty sleeping during a time of distress? (laughs) So I'm not alone, okay. Uh, Yeah, when you're facing distress, it can be hard to sleep. Uh, Just this past spring, uh, my daughter went through a really difficult period of time. Uh, One of her good friends took her own life this past spring, and it sent my daughter into a tailspin. And I find myself waking up almost every night at 1.30 in the morning, unable to sleep, just broken for my daughter and for her friends, crying out to God on their behalf. Prayer comes pretty naturally in those times. I wanted to say I lie down and sleep, but I, I couldn't sleep. It's during distress that we find it difficult quite often to sleep. Yet David here is able to sleep. And I think it's because he's done the preceding things. He's brought his trouble to God. He's then turned his focus upon God, realized how protected he is, how honored he is, how confident he can be in Christ, or in in Christ, though he did not know at that point. And now he's able to say, so you know what? I'm going to lie down and go to sleep. I actually think sleep, choosing to go to bed, can be one of the most God honoring things we can do during distress. See, we live in a culture that wears lack of sleep like a badge. You know, oh, man, you know, I worked uh, 18 hours yesterday, only got 3 hours of sleep. You know, we don't, we, we kind of look up to that person. You know, a guy comes into work, man, I got a good 9 hours last night. You're know, like, what? You slept that long? See, we kind of look down our noses at guys that sleep, uh, but guys that go without sleep, we think they're doing pretty well, they're hardworking. Now, hard work is a good thing, but the Psalms actually tell us that unless the Lord builds a house, those who labor on their own, labor in vain, that those who try to guard a city themselves, unless the Lord's guarding it, they're doing it in vain. That It's useless to work so hard, eating the bread of anxious toil, for the Lord gives sleep to his beloved. Isn't that great? The Lord gives sleep to those he loves. See, so often our attempts to manage our own distress result in our lack of sleep either we can't sleep or we just choose not to go to bed because we're trying to be in control and fix it but when we recognize that we're not our own savior there's only one there's only one deliverer then we can trust god and go to bed and say "I, i can't fix my kids i can't fix my bank account i can't heal this illness but god's over it all and he's got it i'm gonna go to bed i'm gonna get some sleep David got deliverance in the form of sleep. And guess what? God sustained him. He says, I woke again. Absalom didn't get me in the night. I'm still here. The Lord sustained me. We can say the same thing. I lie down to sleep. I wake again because it's God who sustains us. Then he recognizes, I will not fear the tens of thousands. (laughs) David's like, it's like his confidence is growing. I'm not going to fear though. 10,000 warriors are coming against me. I'm not going to be afraid. And you see that David is experiencing deliverance in the form of peace. Uh, anybody here wrestle with anxiety or fear from time to time? The rest of you are lying. Yes, we all do. It's part of living in this world where things come against us. And we are not big enough to handle it. We love to say that, you know, God won't give you more than you can handle. That's not true. He gives us not more than he can handle. I can't handle my, my breakfast half the time. God, all the time, puts us in situations that are way over our heads. But David says, though 10,000 come against me, I got peace because I got you. And so he's experienced deliverance in the form of God's peace that passes understanding. Peace that this world doesn't give. Peace that only comes from God. And David has it. Then he cries out this kind of final request He says, arise, O Lord, and deliver me, O my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Selah. Now, before we address the the form of deliverance that David experienced, I want to first address the harshness of his prayer. Because some of you may be scratching your heads. You're thinking, I'm all good, until he's talking about breaking people's teeth and Punching people in the jaw. What's going on here? How does that square with loving your enemy, turning the cheek? Uh, what's David doing? Uh, three things I want us to see. First of all, David is being honest with God about his desires. Just like at the beginning of the psalm, David simply was honest about all the enemies he faced. Um, he's honest with God now. I mean, he has his son who betrayed him and his friends who have deserted him coming to kill him. He's a little upset. And he would desire God to deal with their wickedness. I think if we were honest, when we are opposed, we would like the injustice to be dealt with. So often, if I am dealt with poorly, I'd like the guy to get what he deserves. And I think we should be honest with God about that. So David is honest with God that this is what he wants to see happen. Um, But a second thing we see is that he doesn't do it himself. David asks God to do it. He leaves justice in God's hands. I mean, God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So God, David says, God, I really wish you would deal with the wickedness of my enemies. Give them what they deserve, but I'm entrusting it to your hands. And we saw David do this with King Saul. He had opportunities to kill Saul a couple times. He didn't do it but he entrusted Saul into God's hands. That we too should be honest with what we would desire happens to people that are assailing us, but leave them in God's hands for God to deal with. But there's a last thing we need to see about the harshness of this prayer. And that is that justice does require that evil be dealt with. What David's asking for here isn't a bad thing. See, at some day, Christ will return. It'll be a glorious day for those who have been waiting for him and praying for his return and living faithfully following him. And it will be a terrible day for those who have not. And there will be a day when wickedness is dealt with, when all that David prayed for will happen, that the enemies will struck and be broken and be removed. And it is a good thing that wickedness will be dealt with and removed from this world. That one day there will be no more suffering because there will be no more sin. But as long as there's sin, there is suffering. So justice requires that evil be dealt with. David is asking for that. So, now that we've seen that it is appropriate to pray even harsh prayers, let's turn back and see uh, what is the deliverance that David experienced in this section. We see here in verses seven to eight that what David has received is deliverance in the form of confidence. Confidence. He's confidently asking that God would bring him justice and he's confident that God will deliver that justice at some point in the future. It's not an if, it's a when. He's been delivered from doubt. Remember the accusation at the beginning of the psalm? God's not going to deliver you David's worked that through in this prayer, and he said, oh, yeah, I know he will. He finishes confidently, from the Lord comes deliverance. From the Lord comes deliverance. He's worked that accusation through in his mind, in his heart, and received from God this confidence that God will deliver him. He has delivered him in the past. He is delivering him in the present, even as he flees Jerusalem, and he will deliver him in the future. What he's concluded, Dave, what David has concluded is that his enemies spoke lies. His enemies were lying when they were telling him, God won't deliver you. You know, in Martin Luther's uh, famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, there's a curious line at the end of one of the stanzas. I want to read it to you here. Uh, we we uh, often sing this great, great, great song. It says, and though this world with devils filled, Should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The Prince of Darkness Grim. We tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo His doom is sure. One little word will fell Him. One little word will fell Him. Interesting last line. One little word. What is that one little word? Well, one time Luther was asked, what is that one little word? You know what he answered? Liar. The little word is liar. Devil, you lie. You lie. Everything that you are saying to us, that God doesn't love you, he doesn't care for you, he won't deliver you, is not true. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, you will be delivered. It's not a matter of if, but when especially during our trouble. Our enemy tries to dissuade our trust in God, saying that God's not going to deliver us. But after we in prayer look to Christ, who shielded us in his death, who shares his glory with us, and who lifts our head in honor when he returns, we can confidently answer him back, liar, I am safe, I am secure, I am loved. God will deliver me. In this life, We will all face distress. That's just part of life. The question is, to whom will we turn in our distress? And I urge you this morning to turn to Jesus. Tell him your distress. Turn your focus upon who he is and what he has done for you. And then ask him boldly for deliverance in the form of sleep, peace, and confidence. And I'm confident he'll give it. What you stand with me? Let's close in prayer now. Lord, how great it is that we can come right to you boldly right now. To the throne of our gracious God, our Abba, our Father. And God, we don't come because we have lived such a good life. We know we haven't. But yet, Lord, you are merciful and slow to anger and abounding in love. and You have sent your son to rescue us from our own sin, our own wandering. And we are so grateful. And God, we come to you and we bring our distresses to you. You know already, even better than we do, the things that trouble our minds and our hearts. And you care. So God, I ask that you would now, uh, in our distresses, first of all, uh, help us to turn to you. Help us to see that you are with us always promising never to leave us, never to forsake us, that you are our shield protecting us in the middle of our troubles. You are our glory. You are the lifter of our heads, and you hear us right now. Help us to know that and be confident. And God, I pray that you will also help us to be honest with you about that which we want we're going to be delivered from. God, I pray that you would give us deliverance, give us peace and confidence and even sleep. And God, I thank you, Lord, that you promise to hear us, because of Jesus Christ. And you promise good for us in Christ. And God, so I ask your blessing upon us now in the week ahead. Would you guide us and bless us this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. God's best to you all. Have a great week.